Tanner, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Tonight's scripture reading is from Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from thir- thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It was my senior year of high school. And I was with some friends on our way to the Palace Chinese Restaurant after church on Sunday. And it was such a big deal for us uh, to be able to go out away from our parents after church on Sundays, to be able to go and to eat somewhere just us as a friend group. And it was a ton of fun. We would go up. It was right next to the movie theater. And my buddy Tyler was riding with me. And Tyler and I, we had a mutual affinity for uh, music, uh, rock music, all that kind of stuff. So we were listening the whole way there, you know, banging our head the whole nine yards, everything. We eat and we get ready to go back home. I was going to take him to his car that was in the church parking lot. And so we had put on a little bit of Metallica, and I think I can say that in here because it's just us tonight. But I was listening to a little bit of that, and as we were going, I pulled out, looked right, looked left, looked right, didn't look left again. I pulled out into an intersection, T-boned. And I had this glorious 98 Ford F-150 Lariat, and that thing was my pride and joy. And I don't know if it's the same way for our young women in the room, but I don't know, there's just something about a guy's first car. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of car it is, you want to do all of the things to it. You know, you get all the aftermarket speakers, you get the head unit put in, you get the sub, you do all nine yards, you get the pipe that makes it sound louder, everything. You want to be able to trick out this particular car. And I had put all of my money, like, it was not very much at that point, into that car. And it was at that moment that my buddy Tyler, like my mind, I hate to say it, but first went to, oh my gosh, I'm losing this car. But then I look over and I see my brother bleeding. Like it is now, it was just some, you know, surface level wounds. He got some glass, little, little glass pieces in his arm. But thinking about the family that was in the other car, it was my first car accident that I had been in. And just the longer that I sat there and I came more back to reality, the more that I really, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to call my dad. Like, I, I'm going to have to make that phone call. Like, I know what it was like growing up in my household. My father, he loved me, but my father, he was one that would discipline me. He was one who would make sure that I was corrected and that I was brought back into line. And I just did not want to make that phone call. 
And so I'm over here, another one of our friends that was following us takes us over to the hospital so Tyler can get his arm bandaged up. And as I'm waiting over there, I feel the weight of my circumstances, I feel the weight of my mistake settle on me more and more. And maybe you've been there too. Maybe it's been a car accident. Maybe you see the blue lights in the rear view. Maybe you're going through. You've been caught by a parent doing something you know you shouldn't. Maybe something that you thought was going to be private became public instantly. And you feel the weight of your mistake all in that moment. You're kind of at a loss for how to move forward. You're kind of at a loss of what to say. And I'm so glad that God's word doesn't leave us speechless in those moments. But that God's word actually speaks a word and gives us words that we can speak in those moments when we feel the full weight of our mistakes. And we see in Psalm 51, the psalm that Cole so wonderfully read for us just now, if you have ever been in a place and when you get to the place where you feel the full weight of your mistakes, my hope is that after tonight that your first inclination will be to go to Psalm 51. And to read and allow this passage to permeate your prayers and your approach to God. Because I think when we consider it, uh, you know, context is everything, right? Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor that said, any, the first three rules of biblical interpretation is context, context, context. Right? You've got to be able to know what's going on to be able to piece things together. And when you understand that, it helps it to come across in fuller force. So if you look at the little preamble of what, is going on up above here in Psalm 51, the little superscript, you see that this was after the prophet Nathan had gone to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. That when you look over in the book of 2 Samuel and you start to see that this is a time in David's life where he feels the full weight of his mistakes. You're like, David? I mean, maybe you did vacation Bible school growing up. Maybe you had heard an occasional story. David and Goliath, that's the same David. The shepherd boy turned giant slayer. The warrior poet played the harp so beautifully. And then he was the one that the king wanted to like pin to the wall with a spear. He was on the run. He was eventually in power. He became the king. But it was in 2 Samuel that we read that this same David, it was that time of year that the kings would, the Bible says, that the kings would go out with their troops, but David wasn't with them. But rather, David was up on his rooftop in the palace. He was looking out over the city, and he sees a young woman. He, he sees a, the text has a beautiful young woman, and she is taking a bath, and he stays. And then he starts to ask some questions. Hey, who, who is she? Oh, that's Bathsheba. She's the Wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your mighty men, one of the people that actually is serving for you right now, oh, you, where you're actually supposed to be. It doesn't say that, but you can put two and two together. And as they go, it, actually he sins for Bathsheba. He abuses his power and he abuses her. He eventually impregnates her. And then he's like, oh, well, I've, be, I, I've, I've made a mistake. Well, now let's call Uriah home. Let's get him back in the house. Let's make sure that he is lulled into thinking that he is the father. And I can keep my hands clean of this situation. But Uriah, he's a man more honorable than that. And he's not going to go home and experience the comforts of home while his kinsmen are back out on the front lines. And so he sleeps outside. Well, David, this, this plan is just getting too complicated. And so he sends Uriah back and there's a message Put your eye on the front lines where the action is the heaviest. That's what it says. 
So David sees this snowball effect happening of sin in his life. He lingered in lust, then he took and abused. He tried to cover up, and now he's having a man killed. And it's after this that the prophet Nathan comes to him. He says, King, I've got a story for you. I've got, I've got a story. It's something that's happened in this kingdom. There were, there were two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man, I mean, he had flocks, cover hills. I mean, everywhere. And there was a poor man. He had just one little sheep. He nurtured the sheep. He took care of the sheep. The sheep ate with them and his family and the house. It wasn't like all the other sheep. But then this traveler comes to the rich man's house. And uh, the rich man, rather than taking one of his flock, he actually goes over to the poor man, takes his lamb, kills it, prepares it, and uses it for the traveler. Well, it's at this point that King David is livid. He says, no way, not happening in my kingdom. This guy, he's going to pay back four times what he took, and then he's going to die. And it's at that point that Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. You're the rich man. And David, in that moment, the hardness that had built up around his heart, the blindness that had settled in over his eyes, it goes away and it starts to shatter. And he feels the full weight of his mistakes. And he comes and he writes the words to Psalm 51 for us. This is a psalm for anyone Not just one who feels like, well, I've never done anything as bad as David. This is expressed to the nth degree to show us that no one is too far gone from repentance. No one is too far gone from the grace of God. And as we come through here, you see, there are going to be three things that we see in this sermon. Three things that we see in this particular text. Where do you run after you feel the full weight of your mistakes? What do you say and then what do you do after? Because you see, whenever you start to feel the full weight of your mistakes, you will have the tendency to run. And our natural tendency is to run away from God, to get away as fast as humanly possible. That we will want to run and hide. Why? It's because it's what our forefather and mother Adam and Eve did. Remember when they started to feel the full weight of their mistake? What did they do? They ran and they hid and they tried to sew together fig leaves to cover their nakedness and their shame. That for us, what we try to do is we try to run and we try to hide and we try to cover. And that is what the enemy would like for us to continue to do even to this day. And he might even put some spiritual spin on it. He might try to put thoughts in your head that would sound something like, well, you can't go to God right now. You're too dirty. Well, you've really got to get this area of your life cleaned up first. And then you can go. And then you can talk to him. Or, I mean, do you realize how mad he is at you? There's no way he would ever want to talk to you again. You see, the enemy wants to capitalize on you running, and he wants you to point you in the direction where it is away from the Lord, but you're just going to keep running and running, and then you're eventually going to collapse in on yourself. Because you see, when you start to feel the full weight of your mistakes, you're going to run. But I would encourage you, don't run away from God like our forefather and foremother, but run towards God. Run to, in the fallout of sin, run full out to God. In the fallout of sin, run all out to God. Because in those moments, naturally you are going to want to get away, but the Lord desires to bring you near. We see it there in the beginning of Genesis. He starts to ask Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? And you see, the thing about this is that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knew where Adam and Eve were. When God asks a question in scriptures, it's not because he's trying to figure out the answer. 
When God asks a question, he's trying to draw something in us out. And right now, he's trying to draw Adam and Eve out of hiding. That God is not content just to let them stay over here. He is drawing them out. And he is not content to let David stay right here. Why do we know this? Because he sent the prophet Nathan. Because he did not just let him go and continue on a collision course with sin and death and destruction. But he sent a prophet to come and to convict him. To let him know about the reality and the weight of his sin. And he comes to him. And what does David say? Verse 1, create and have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, David, he knows that God is merciful. He is full of steadfast love. He's able to blot out his sin. He's able to make him clean. And what does he do? He appeals to God's mercy based on what? good that he had done in the past? No. The good things that he was going to hope to do in the future, the promises that he was going to make to God of how he was going to change? No. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot my train. He is appealing to God's mercy based on God's mercy and his mercy alone. Not his religious resume. Not how beautifully he played the harp for the king and for the congregation of Israel. He did not appeal to God's mercy based on how he had previously killed the giant and how he had led faithfully for so many years. He is not saying, I've done all of these good things for you and can you just kind of overlook this last little chapter of my life? And he's not looking ahead and being like, God, can you forgive me because I promise I'm going to do better next time? Can you forgive me because I'm going to get my act together because I'm going to make things right right here? No, he's saying, God, have mercy on me according to your mercy. He's not appealing to anything that he could do in and of himself. He is appealing to the character of God and to God alone. Because he has revealed himself as one who is able to be merciful. He knows that he can't earn this, but he knows who God is. He knows what he is like. And this is, he knows what he's done. Look in verse 3 and following. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And part of what David is doing right here in saying you delight in truth in the inward being is the truth in his inward being right here is he is actually calling sin what it is. He's not downplaying what he had done as a slip up, a mishap, a bump in the road. No. He's not trying to cover up. He's not trying to minimize. He is bringing it full on into the light and he is calling it what it is. It is sin. It is an offense. It is something that has transgressed a holy God. And he is a multitude of offenses that have piled up. He has got all of these sins that have come and culminated right here. And he says in verse 4 that against you and you only have I sinned. And that is not to minimize what happened because he definitely sinned against Bathsheba. He definitely sinned against Uriah. But when you can trace it back, any sin that is done against someone else is actually ultimately a sin against a holy God. 
It doesn't minimize the sin and its action on someone else, but it magnifies the fact that it gives it more weight because God is the ultimate judge for all sin. David right here, he has sinned against people. He has sinned against his God. And what does he do next? He runs to God knowing who God is and knowing who he himself is. So when you feel those moments where the full weight of your mistakes starts to press down on you, your natural inclination will be to run away as fast as you can from the Lord. Try to silence the accusations of the enemy in that moment. Try to fight the sinful impulses of compounding on itself and turn to the Lord. He is already coming after you. That he was with Adam and Eve. He was here with David through the prophet Nathan. And he is in each and every one of our lives here today. And so when you come before the Lord, when you run to him, now what are you going to say? What do we say? Well, there are these words that are in verses 7 through 12. We can say these words in the aftermath. I think it is an incredible practice to be able to pray scripture. That a lot of times if you feel very stagnant or stale in your prayer life and that it's not going anywhere, to be able to go through and to be able to take the word of God and to pray it back to him. And in this instance, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God, please purge this sin from my life. Please make me clean. I know that you can. I ask that you will. Wash me, God. Make my life clean and pure. That you can use God's word and you can pray it. You can memorize these words even better and let them soak your prayers all the way down to the bone. Or you could write, rewrite these words in your own words, like Eugene Peterson. Now, some of y'all might know Eugene Peterson. Uh, he was a Presbyterian pastor here in the U.S. He died back in 2018. It was a tremendous loss. But Eugene Peterson, he has an incredible legacy, um, and a lot of people are familiar with his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Maybe y'all have come across The Message. And people all the time, especially seminary brothers, coming up to me like, what do you think about The Message? It's like, man, I love The Message. I think it's great to be able to come alongside in your regular reading of God's Word. Because you see, what Eugene Peterson was trying to do was he was not trying to make a translation that would bear the full weight of Bible study. But it's interesting, when you go back and you read his memoirs and how he started paraphrasing the message, it was a, what he considers a pastoral act. He started paraphrasing the book of Galatians so that his church would kind of sense the vibrancy again of God's word because he felt like they had been lulled to sleep and then as he was pastoral as he was counseling with people sometimes he would write out on pieces of paper paraphrasing these psalms and giving it to people helping them like a prescription almost to be able to pray and I'll go through and I'll read it as a supplement and I came to this paraphrase of Psalm 51 verses 7 through 12 and maybe you could pray words like this Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me into foot tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start 
in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from great exile and put a fresh wind in my sails. That we, you don't have to have a formula. You don't have to have an incantation. You don't have to say things right and in a certain order asking Him to make you clean and to restore you. He is ready and willing to be able to forgive you. That I think sometimes a lot of our picture of God is like this angry person, this angry, withholding, begrudging father, but rather what we see in the scriptures is that there is a God who is ready and willing to chase after us and to call us out in our sin, not to minimize it, not to sweep it under the rug, but to bring it out into the light and to deal with it. Why? Not so that we can go happy on our merry way, but so that we can be brought back into fellowship with God, our creator, and with God, our redeemer. That we have this Lord that we see in the New Testament. He is willing to make people clean. It's like Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. You fast forward a little bit to the New Testament. And there's a man with leprosy that comes up to Jesus. And you see, the thing about it was leprosy was a kind of a catch-all term for skin diseases, but it made people ritually unclean. You're like, well, what does that mean? It means that they couldn't go and worship in the temple. It means they had to stand outside. They were outside of the fellowship. They probably even had to stay outside of their families. They were on the lowest rung of the social ladder. And so Jesus comes down from the mountain. There's a great crowd, but then there's this leper that comes in, and when he walks, everybody else around him starts to move like a force field. And he comes and the scripture says that he gets down on his knees before Jesus. And Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? He says, sir, if you will, you can make me clean. And everybody's just waiting to see what's going to happen. Is Jesus going to send this man away and say this is judgment upon you? Is Jesus going to heal? We've seen him do other healings. Is he just going to speak and it's going to happen? It's neither one of those things. It's something much more scandalous. It's something much more that gives us a picture into the heart of our God. What Jesus does right there in Matthew chapter 8 with this man with a skin disease who probably hadn't known the touch of another human for years or decades feels the very Son of God extend his hand And Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 says, And he touched him and said, I will be clean. And the man was clean. A lot of times we think that we are too dirty for Jesus to deal with. A lot of times we don't think we're worth anything for the Son of God to extend a hand to us. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. That you were created in the image of God. And because of that, you are worth something. You have intrinsic value. You're worthy of dignity and respect and love. And that image has been distorted, but it has not been utterly destroyed. That Jesus has come. And the problem that would keep us separated from him, he ultimately deals with you don't have to have your life all together for the lord to make you clean you don't even have to do stuff 
to bring yourself back into right relationship with Him. You merely have to come before Him on your knees and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Because some of you might be waking up to the fact that everything in my life is not right. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of brokenness. There's fallout everywhere. I don't know how I'm going to make it another day. The Lord can restore you. The Lord can make you whole. The Lord can make you clean. Or maybe some of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time, but there is besetting sin in your life that you can't just seem to shake. And it's a cycle that's stuck on repeat that you wish that you could break out of. But the Lord can and will make you clean. You are not too far gone. That we have a God who looks not for us to do stuff. Because we look at verses 16 and 17. Look at Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would bring it. (laughs) I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, there is no sacrifice that you could provide. There is no righteous act that you could do. There is not enough that you could do to put tallies of righteousness in your column on the charts. To put you back in right standing with God. There is no sacrifice that you could make in this life. But there is a sacrifice that was made for you. That can bring you back. That we see, we look at the beginning of this section in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Uh, Chad Bird, he's an author, writer, thinker, theologian that I think a lot of. He's a Lutheran writer. And he has this to say. He says that this word hyssop is a gospel, a plant with a gospel history. Hyssop, a plant with a gospel history. Kind of just looks like a wildflower. I, don't, I wish I had a picture for you. I don't I have a picture. But kind of on a stalk with some purple flowers, long stem. But you see, this plant hyssop, if we start to trace it throughout Scripture, we start to see the divine picture that comes into focus. Because you see, it was hyssop that the blood, that was blood-soaked, that painted the doors for the first Passover in the exodus from Egypt. That hyssop was soaked with blood, painting the doors. That hyssop was the same plant that was used to sprinkle a cleansing concoction over a leper. Because again, people didn't want to touch the lepers. But they would soak the stalk of the hyssop and fling it over the lepers. And that it was also hyssop that was used to purify a person who had come into contact with a corpse. Because to touch somebody that was dead was to make you ritually unclean. And this was a way that would make you ritually clean. That could restore you to the fellowship. Captivity, leprosy, and death. And hyssop as a gospel plant was used to remedy all of these things. All of these things that David knew. The captivity and the enslavement of sin. Feeling the full weight and being cut off and isolated and ostracized. And then actually being in the throes and the orbit of death. We know these two. We know what it feels like to be held captive by sin that we just can't seem to shake. We know what it feels like to be unclean at arm's length. 
and apart. And we know apart from Christ what it's like to be spiritually dead. Though we're walking around here on two legs. But there is one that can bring freedom, that can make us clean and make us alive again. And it was Jesus who came and lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And it was when Jesus was dying on the cross, hung between heaven and earth. In John 19, that his lips were touched by a sponge full of sour wine on what? On a hyssop branch. That finally the hyssop had touched the true Passover lamb whose blood would cover all of those who would repent and believe, who would find themselves safe in Him. In Christ, David looking forward and now we looking backward, everyone who repents and believes is purged, is cleansed, is washed, and is made white as snow. That when we look away from self and when we look to Christ and we say, have mercy on me, O God, Purge me, cleanse me, blot out my sins. We know that he can and we know that he will. That right here we see it doesn't mean that we're perfect from here on out. (laughs) We're not going to be perfect after we initially start the road following Jesus. Some people think that, that oh my life's going to be perfect. I'm going to be perfect. Everything's going to come together. I'm here to, I'm just going to go ahead and curb that at the very beginning. It's not. It, life is not going to be perfect and you are not going to be perfect. And there are going to be times where you fall into sin and where you start to feel the full weight of your mistakes. And in following Jesus, you feel the tension there. You feel the conviction there because you want to please your Heavenly Father. So what do you do? Well, I would encourage you in this. To confess your sin for the rest of your days. To repent of your sin and to turn to Jesus. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he wrote those 95 theses and nailed them. Church door, right? You know that history class. Well, in those 95 theses, those 95 sentences, what he wrote, the very first one, he says, the Christian life is one all of repentance. Is all of confession. We have to deal openly and honestly with our sin. And so people ask me sometimes, it's like, okay, well, how do I confess my sin? Like, am I supposed to go to somebody? Am I supposed to like uh, get in one of those little boxes, flip the curtain, all this other kind of stuff? What, what does confession look like? Confession for the life of a believer, you have direct access to God. You don't have to go through any one other person. Jesus himself is our great high priest and you now have access to the Lord of all creation. You confess to him and you confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. And so when you confess, there are two different modes in which we confess. Confession for believers has two parts. We confess what we've done. And we confess what he's done. Because you see, a lot of times we think confession is just, oh, here's the long laundry list of all the things that I've done. Yes, that is a part of confession, but confession for believers is two-pronged. It has two parts. Yes, we confess, we own up to what we've done, but there is a different sense of that word confess. It's what is your, like I baptized a young woman this past Sunday morning and I asked her two questions. Has there come a time in your life where you've turned from sin and self and where you've trusted in Jesus and in him alone to save you? Yes. 
then what is your confession of faith? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. What do you believe? That is your confession. So you own up in confession to what I have done, but you also, if you just stop there, you're not finished, you also have to confess what He has done. I have done this, but God has covered this. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to remind yourself that God is not working on an installment plan with your sins but that he has paid for them once and for all. After he took that sip from the branch with the hyssop, he said what? It is finished. Now it's almost finished, or finished up to a certain point. It is finished, period. That your sins in Christ, past, present, and future, are dealt with. That's not a license to keep on sinning. But when you realize the magnitude of grace and mercy that has been heaped upon you, Now we don't want to treat it as a license to go about doing whatever it is we were doing before. But now we want to seek to follow him and to give him all the praise and all the glory because he is the one who has restored light to our lives, who has bestowed love upon us and who helps us to remember what it means to live. There are going to be those moments where you feel the full weight of your mistakes and where you will dread running to your father. But it was in that moment after... When I was at the hospital, I still remember St. Vincent Seast over in Roebuck. I was standing out there of the ER. Tyler was inside getting bandaged up, and my dad pulled up. And I was on pins and needles waiting for him to come up. And I still remember to this day my dad coming up to me and giving me a hug. He knew that I felt the full weight, that I knew the magnitude of what I had done, the mistake that I had made. And he wasn't there to try to make me feel worse about it. He knew that I was sorry. He knew that I would confess. He knew that in that moment with him that I would repent, that I, I would try to be more careful. But I didn't have to do all that. I was his son, and he was my father. And that picture that I have now has informed, in a small way, how I view the Lord. We don't always do theology that way, but we sometimes hear reverberations of the gospel, and we see it in the lives of other people. And that we have a God. <laughs> I love the way Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher, from England, the way that he said, God is more ready to forgive than I am ready to offend. That's a paradigm shift for a lot of us. We sometimes think that God is withholding or begrudging, but rather he is loving and merciful and just. Because you see, he has already dealt with our sins with Jesus on the cross. We sang it just before I came up here. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. For him to visit those sins upon us would make him unjust right now. We don't have to pit his love against his justice. He is a perfect and good and wise father. There might be consequences. There might be ramifications. There might be things that spin out from our actions here. But for those who are in Christ, the punishment has already been dealt with. And we now can walk in life and in freedom. And so now what do we do after? What do we do after this? What we see in verse 13, we will teach sinners the ways of God. In verse 15, we will sing the praises of the one who saved us. Open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Because you see, when we realize the full weight of our mistakes, but how he has dealt with them, and we feel the freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God, then we can't help but to give him praise. Because he has done something for us that we could never, 
do for ourselves. Our sins, they were many and they were heavy. But his mercy is more and his mercy is stronger. Let's pray. Maybe you're here tonight and you have felt the full weight of your mistakes. Maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time as we've sat underneath the word. And I just want to create the space for you to be able to confess. Not to me, not to any other pastor or leader, but to confess directly to the Lord. You don't have to have your words perfect. They don't have to be polished. They don't have to be $5 religious words. It could be for things that you have done or things that you've left undone. But here in this moment, let's confess our sins to the Lord. And now take a moment to finish confession. Not where we just confess what we've done, but where we confess what He has done. Tell yourself what you know to be true about the Lord and about His work on your behalf. Remind yourself of the gospel, that Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that one day Christ will come again. Confess what He's done. Heavenly Father, we thank You for coming for us, for not leaving us in darkness, but coming to bring light, coming to bring life, and coming to bring love. In ways where we forget it, God, we are sorry. For those who profess the name of Jesus and would live in a way that is not compatible with it, God, would you forgive us? But God, we confess the blood of Jesus over these sins. And that when you look on us, you don't see us as a mistake, but you see us as you see your own son. Help us to know, help us to experience, help us to savor this, God. Even in the moments where it seems too good to be true. We look to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.